October 31st, Halloween Day, All Hallows Eve, um, Catherine's birthday as well, happy birthday. <laughs> um, I asked my daughters this morning, do you know what today is? And uh, Lucia said, Sunday. <laughs> I asked the worship team the same question, and Catherine said, Sunday. <laughs> so it, that's, these are all true. Today is also what they call Reformation Day, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther took 95 theses and nailed them to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And among other things, he confronted the notion that you could pay the church some money and thereby gain an indulgence which would either purchase for yourself or somebody maybe that you love that has gone to purgatory, uh, early freedom. Uh, So Luther said something along the lines of, I don't think so. And uh, that's the reason why this sermon will not be in Latin this morning. It's the reason why <clears throat> you have an English Bible. Some of you on your U version, on your iPhones, have got about 26 different versions of the English Bible and, uh, and others as well. The passion to get the Word of God into the hands of the people was among the main concerns in the Reformation. So we gather this morning to open up the Word of God and listen for ourselves to what God has spoken to us in the Word. And we praise God for men like Martin Luther and others who have brought this to us from generation to generation to generation at at, at a high cost so that you can lay your eyes on an English Bible and hear the Word of God. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Word, and we ask that this morning as we listen to Paul's uh, instruction to the church in Corinth, that you would give us ears to hear your Word for us here today. Give us grace. Give me grace as a messenger and give uh, those in this room ears to hear the Word of God this morning. We pray for humble hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Corinthians. We've been here. We'll be here for a while. We're uh, entering into the third chapter. And here's how the flow has been going. Paul says basically to the Corinthians, there's something uh, that's not right in the church. You seem to be more concerned with your gifts of the Holy Spirit than you are concerned with the one who gave you the gifts. So in chapter 1, he's trying to get their eyes up onto Christ who gave them gifts. This is the one who receives the glory or or who ought to be. receiving the glory at some point we we start to tap into uh some of what has brought the concern to paul's mind and that's that in the church there's some quarreling taking place you've got some of the corinthians saying i'm siding with paul on this issue you've got some saying i'm siding with apollos on this issue and paul says is christ divided does christ send paul to say one thing and apollos to say something different no, he doesn't do that. We are being sent from Jesus. We have a consistent message. And this quarreling ought not to be happening. And then what we find is that as people are taking sides, it appears that a lot of people are probably taking sides against Paul. And so Paul says, so let's embrace all sides. And by the way, Uh, That includes me and the message that I have brought to you, which apparently the Corinthians are keeping at an arm's length because the message is the message of a crucified Messiah, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And in this Corinthian culture where there is so much admiration for uh, the, the... 
wisdom of the rhetorician, of the public speaker, the wisdom of the philosophies that are traveling through the minds and the words of the eloquent and powerful in Corinth, as, as, as the Corinthians look at that wisdom, so-called wisdom, and they look at Paul, they, they're just going, I don't know if this guy Paul is for real. He's just a simple man. He's a simple preacher. His message is kind of simple. And uh, they're just taking a step back. And Paul is coming to them and saying, no, this gospel is the wisdom of God. This gospel is the power of God. And so you should be perceiving it to be that way because people who have the Holy Spirit perceive that this gospel is the wisdom of God. And you guys have the Spirit. So what's the problem? Well, last week, Paul talked to us about the natural person. And then he talked to us about the spiritual person. So let me just recap very quickly. The natural person. I entitled the sermon last week, Biblical Anthropology, Part 1, meaning let's just study what the Bible says about human beings. Let's, let's study what the Bible says about mankind. And specifically I said, we can see in the way that Paul talks about the natural person, the way that the will has been designed. The faculty of the will is designed in such a way that a person observes the world around them, discovers which things are most appealing to them, and then always moves toward their greatest desire. That's how the will works. And the natural man, Paul says there are three things that we can know about the natural man. The natural man, this is coming from chapter 2, verse 14, the natural man will not finally take that step of accepting Christ. And the reason he can't do it is because when he looks at Christ, before he accepts or denies, when he looks at Christ, there's no appeal. Christ is foolish when this natural man looks at the cross. And the reason it's foolish, he takes one more step back, is because the natural man cannot see the things of the Spirit. There's a blindness, an inability to perceive. So, The natural man cannot see, and because he cannot see, he does not approve. It's foolishness to him. The cross is stupid. And and because he can't see and doesn't approve, he will not accept the things of the Spirit. That's the natural man. And in the spiritual man, those three problems have been overcome. The spiritual person is a person in whose life the Holy Spirit has given light so that you can see the things of the Spirit. And not only that, Jesus has given, through the Holy Spirit, I should just say, the Holy Spirit has given admiration of the things of the Spirit. Not only did He turn on the lights, He also gave you a heart of love for the things of the Spirit. And that's why the spiritual man embraces the things of the Spirit. He lets you see it. He fills your heart with love so that you embrace the things of the Spirit. This is how the will works. That's what happens when you are born again. That's the spiritual person. And what shall we say about the Corinthians? Should we call them spiritual people or should we call them natural people? The strange thing is that as we'll see in a few minutes, Paul seems to indicate they have the Spirit. At the same time, they are not embracing the things of the Spirit. So should we call them spiritual people? Should we call them natural people? Paul says, he goes for neither option. He, He says, you're fleshly people. You're people of the flesh. Okay. So what does that mean? What does the Bible mean, and more specifically, what does Paul mean when he speaks of the flesh? 
Let's just lay our eyes on it, first of all. Let me read it here. Um, I'm not sure what version Stephen just read from. The, in, in Stephen's version, it said worldly. It's perhaps NIV. Okay, so the ESV says flesh. That's, this is, that's the word I want to key in on, flesh, or, or worldly if you're using NIV. Um, so let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 1 through the first part of verse 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready for you are still of the flesh. So let me give you a definition of the flesh from Paul's theology. I'm going to give you a And then I'm going to try to back it up, show you where I'm pulling that from, and then we'll go in and we'll look at the Corinthians and how this is working out in their lives. The flesh. Here's a definition of the flesh. The flesh is identified with the present age. First thing I want to say about it. The flesh is identified with the present age. The flesh is identified with the present, perishing, temporary, and yes, even evil age. And with regards to the human will, it is the destructive influence of desires and values that belong to the present evil age. With regards to the will, it is this influence in the heart of destructive desires, values that belong to this present evil age. Now, I know that that probably doesn't quite make sense yet. Hopefully it will in a few minutes. That's where we're going to start. I'll come back to it. You'll remember that we are uh, talking about two ages. Is this guy going to work for me? Hold on. You might just have to get warmed up here or something. Two ages. One present. There we go. Okay. Thank you. Okay. One present age. We live right now in the overlap of two ages. One of them is what the Bible would refer to as the, as the present age. It goes back from, I don't know, creation to some point at which it's going to stop. This age will come to an end. It is a present, perishing age. And one age is yet to come. It is a future age. It is the end time. It is the last days. It is a heavenly age. And that future heavenly age that will never end has actually broke into the present evil age in an inaugural form. It happens... Well, let me... I'll get there in a second. Okay, Present evil age, a future age that's broken. We live in between these two ages. Both of them are here. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he means that future age, all those promises that, you, that the Jews are expecting, boom, they have come and they have been inaugurated. Not consummated, inaugurated. We live right between those two. With regards to the present evil age, there is a power at work in the hearts of human beings who belong to the present evil age. There's a power at work in the hearts of human beings that belong to the present evil age. And that power is called the flesh. And its strength consists in rotten desires, unholy desires. It's a power that belongs to this age. Its strength consists in desires. So you see Paul say, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Passions of our flesh. It has to do with desire. Passions. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
That's how you lived your life before you came to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible says this is what drives your life. These are the desires that drive you. If you came to know Jesus, you should know this was what drove you. There was no ability to escape it. They drove you. They dominated you. The flesh and the desires of the flesh were enslaving. You could not break free from those things. The natural man cannot escape the power of the desires of the flesh. They win every single time. Until the Holy Spirit steps into your life and overcomes the limitations of the natural man. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, this heavenly age breaks into the present age, into a person's life, when the Holy Spirit gives a new birth. It's the birth of a new creation of that heavenly age. And in that new birth, He brings heavenly Holy Spirit power so that you can live differently. He does it, this power, the power of the age to come, the power of the Holy Spirit breaks into your life in the midst of this present evil age. This power breaks into your life and conquers the power of the flesh by doing at least two things. One, as I've already said, He opens your eyes so that you see the glory of God in Jesus. Never saw it before until heaven broke into your life in the form of the Holy Spirit gave you eyes to see. Every week I give this final blessing. May the God who made light shine out of darkness shine into your hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that verse mean? It means I am asking God who in the beginning said, let there be light and there was light. I am asking Him to do in your hearts that kind of thing. Let there be light. And when that happens, I pray that there is knowledge there of glory so that you see glory when you look at Jesus. The first thing the Holy Spirit does when He overcomes the flesh is He gives you eyesight of glory. The second thing He does is He stirs up your desires. So, He turns on the lights to give you sight. He heals your heart so you delight in Jesus. That's what happens in the new birth. And by doing this, he overcomes the power of the flesh. The power of the flesh, which consists in rotten desires, is overcome when the Spirit-granted desire for Jesus enters into your life. That Spirit-granted desire for Jesus is power. Desire is power. Christians talk about when Jesus came into my life, I suddenly had the, I was transformed. Suddenly had the power, the strength to do things that I could not do before. You said no to things you couldn't say no to before. How did that happen? Desire. Jesus gave you new desires. It is power. The power of the Holy Spirit, which brings a heavenly power, spiritual desires that are alive in your heart so that you say no to things that you should say no to. The power to live differently is the power of superior desires. Specifically, it's a Holy Spirit-driven desire that outweighs the desire for sin. This is the power of Christ for obedience. And it's granted to you through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, according to Paul, the flesh is no longer an enslaving power for the genuine Christian. It's no longer an enslaving power for the genuine Christian because it has been conquered by your transfer into the new kingdom. You've been transferred into a new kingdom, into a heavenly kingdom. So, Paul says... You, however, are not, Romans 8, 9, you are not in the flesh. Christian, that's not 
you anymore. But in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, you have transferred ages. And, Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus was crucified. You are in Jesus so that when He died, you died. And that old you that used to be under the domination of the desires of the flesh, you don't have to be that person anymore. Because that person died with Christ. You are in the Spirit. The decisive event has taken place and you have to be the old you. So Paul says, Romans 8, 12-13, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, not to the old age, not to the old you. We are debtors to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he means go to hell. You will be damned if you live according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You are a debtor to the Spirit, not to the flesh. And even though we're not enslaved to the flesh, you should know that the Christian experiences a very genuine battle against the power of the old age, to which all of you are going, Amen. <laughs> we, are, we, are, we are experiencing the battle against the power of the old age. The old you used to be enslaved by the flesh, and its strength consisted in your desire for sin, But right now, because we're awaiting our full redemption, and we are waiting, there are things that will not be redeemed until Jesus comes back, like society. Will not be redeemed. There will be things that will not be redeemed. Romans chapter 8, like the earth and your body will not be redeemed until Jesus comes back, meaning it's not going to take on its final state. Because we're waiting for the full redemption, there is a residual desire for sin that still exists in every one of us. There's still some power there that the old age has, and its power consists in desire for sin. If the Holy Spirit is stirring your affection for Jesus and pulling you, then the flesh is that desire in you that's pulling back the other way. But realize that that belongs to the old you. The old self, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. That is in one sense already decisively conquered because you died with Christ at Calvary. Decisively. You, you, the flesh was crucified. And in another sense, it's still very much present because we're waiting for redemption. So that day by day, you find yourself resisting the very things you ought to be loving. Because in some sense, you still love the things that you shouldn't love. That's why genuine Christians, you know, genuine Christians do all all kinds of crazy things. They shouldn't do. Like guys looking at pornography, right? Why? Because there's still some residual desire that's pulling or romance novel. What pornography is for a guy, romance novels are for women. You should know that. So why? You still desire things that you shouldn't desire. It's pulling against you still. Residual desire for sin. Because there's a sense in which it's already taking place. There's a sense in which you are not yet redeemed. And in your own being, in your own being, you're experiencing the tension between the already not yet of the kingdom of God. In your own person, you're experiencing the battle between two ages. The age to come and the present perishing age. 
And when Paul wants to talk about how the Christian experiences in their own person the battle between the ages, he likes to use the words the flesh and the spirit. The power of the old age, the power of the new age. So, he says things like this. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. It's the war of two ages taking place right here in every one of us. So, the definition of flesh, as I said, it's identified with the present age. The flesh is identified with the present age. It is the destructive influence of desires and values that belong to the present evil age. Therefore, especially in Paul, the flesh is cited with sin, rebellion, death, uh, the mind, Romans 8, 7, the mind that is set on flesh, flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Or we already saw this one. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So, the flesh is bad, bad, bad. This is not what you want to be identified with. And... <clears throat> It's a danger if it's not confronted in our lives. In fact, these verses indicate that if a person were to maintain a life of consistent, unrepentant submission to the desires of the flesh, that they would die, that is, they would be damned. Genuine Christians do not persist in conformity to the flesh. Genuine Christians do not persist in conformity to the flesh. Instead, they put the flesh to death. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And if you don't, you're going to die. Okay, so I have to come down hard on that. Why? Because, one, I want you to know the seriousness of the accusation that Paul is bringing against the Corinthians. This is not good. And two, I don't want you to be comforted by what I'm about to say, which is that sometimes genuine Christians can have unspiritual and fleshly seasons. I don't want that to comfort you. Um, when Paul says that the Corinthians are people of the flesh, what he's saying is that they're giving in to the desires of the old age. Those, you know, there's the war. They're giving in to this wrong side of the battle. Uh, they're not living in conformity to the Holy Spirit. Even though they have the Holy Spirit. Genuine Christians, but not conforming to the Spirit. They are not battling against that power. Now, like I said, I don't want that to comfort you. If, if you're in a season where you are just, just giving in to the flesh... It should not be comforting to you for me to say genuine Christians can have a season like that. That'd be like if you're in an adulterous situation and I say sometimes in history genuine Christians have committed adultery like David and then you go, oh, good. Okay. Now, I am not trying to comfort you if you're in a season of giving in to the flesh. What I'm trying to do is if you're a genuine Christian, I'm trying to warn you. I'm trying to warn you. You have to put that to death. You have to put it to death. We are, as Christians, susceptible to things that are contrary to our new identity. We're susceptible to rebellion and unbelief. We're susceptible to the kinds of things that lead to damnation. If you don't put it to death, you will die. Now, the genuine Christian, you want to know the difference between a genuine Christian and a fake Christian when it comes to this? The genuine Christian repents. The fake Christian persists in rebellion. That's how you know it. That's how the, you will prove yourself to be either genuine or fake 
by either repenting or just keeping on down the same old role of hardened heart, rebellion, living in the flesh. So, what's going on in Corinth? Um, well, apparently you've got genuine Christians who are giving in to the flesh and Paul is not going so far as to call them natural people. Right? He's just told us what the natural person the natural person is a person without the spirit. But Paul doesn't go that far when he talks to the Corinthians. He does call them unspiritual. He does call them fleshly. It's significant that he doesn't use that word that he just used when he was talking about people who don't have the spirit in chapter 2 verse 14. Instead, he uses fleshly. So what's the difference between the natural person and the fleshly person? And the answer is sometimes nothing. Sometimes there's no difference. Sometimes what you've got is a person without the spirit who's acting just like a person without the spirit. But let's be a little more nuanced. The natural person definitely does not know Jesus. There's no, there's no Holy Spirit. The natural person definitely does not know Jesus. The spiritual person... I'm sorry, the fleshly person might know Jesus. Might not. person who's living that way might know Jesus. They might not. But even if they do, they're acting just like the natural person. And the reason that Paul brought the natural person into the picture in verse 14 is because he wants you to have in your minds a fresh image of what unbelief looks like. This is what it looks like if you don't know Christ. And he wants you to see the resemblance between a person that doesn't know Jesus and a person who's living a fleshly life. And the point is, they look exactly the same. They look the same. A fleshly person looks like a natural person. And that's why it's such a dangerous place to be if that's where you are in your life because there's no saying which side you're on. The only way you prove it is whether or not you repent. Paul says, test yourself. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 13, 15. Test yourself to see whether or not you are of the faith. It's especially relevant when you're in that kind of season. And I've been in that kind of season. And you don't want to be there. Okay, so, indications that Paul considers the Corinthians to be Christians. Number one, in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, he says that the Corinthians are in Christ. He also affirms the reality of the spiritual gifts in their life. Okay? So there's some evidence of that. The other, the other reason why I think, yeah, Paul definitely views the Corinthians as genuine believers is because in chapter 3, where we're at today, he regards them as brothers. Additionally, he also says that they're in Christ, although he qualifies it, infants in Christ. But... He does seem to be fairly confident that the Corinthians do belong to Christ, even though they're fleshly. Now, why? Why, does, why is he confident? Probably a couple reasons. I, I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. One reason is he knows the Corinthians pretty well. I think when Paul went to Philippi, planted a church in Philippi, I think he was there, like scholars say, between three and five weeks. When he went to Corinth, he was there for a year and a half. So he spent a lot of, he spent a lot of time at least for the Apostle Paul, a lot of time with this church body. He knows them pretty well. He, and he's treating them like brothers and sisters. The second reason why I think that he's addressing them this way is because this is pretty early in the confrontation process. The longer that a person goes in a season of unrepentance of sin, the longer a person goes, the more and more it may be clearly demonstrating, I don't know if this person knows the Lord. Which is why the last step in church discipline, according to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, the last step is you treat them like a tax collector and a Gentile. You, you remove them from church membership. It just means you go to, you go to the point where you're treating people like they're outside of the covenant community. Unrepentant sin seems to be demonstrating 
Unbelief in Jesus. Dangerous, dangerous place to be. Put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? So, this is a serious charge. It's a serious situation. That's why Paul is in a brotherly way coming to this church. And he's trying to confront and restore. Bring them back. Bring them back. These people are blind to Jesus. Paul says, the people of this age crucified the Lord of glory. Why would you ever do that? Because they couldn't see that He was the Lord of glory. Otherwise they wouldn't have. Why is Paul bringing that up? Because the Corinthians are being sided with those kinds of people. And they're people of the Spirit. He loves them. Don't, that's not you. Come back. Come back. You're blind to the Gospel. Okay. So the charge is serious. The situation is serious. Paul is trying to bring them back. What I want to look at today are, is two things. Are two things. I want to look at two things that we can learn about the flesh from this passage. Two things. Two fruit of the flesh from this passage. And the first one is this. Even if you have the Holy Spirit, even if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, the flesh can cloud your vision if you don't resist it. Even if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes, the flesh can cloud your vision if you don't resist it. So, the way we know this from this text is because the Corinthians view Paul's gospel as milk, not food. Let me read it to you again. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Okay, so what's going on here? There's a couple interpretations you could go with. The first one is this. Paul is saying that he willingly chose to withhold information from the Corinthians. He came, he assessed them. It's like, ah, they don't seem too spiritual, so I'm only going to give them milk. Okay, it would imply that Paul has some deeper truth that he's withholding. And, and remember, of course, the Corinthians would have loved to get, get some of that deeper truth. They want wisdom. Give me, some, give me something fancy and, power and, and secretive. Give me some secret wisdom. They would have loved that. So it could be that Paul is responding to that complaint and he's saying, I didn't give you food. I only gave you milk because you're not spiritual enough yet. And I withheld some things for you. It would mean that the proclamation of the gospel, which is what Paul has taught the Corinthians already. We know from chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Uh, Paul has taught the gospel. It would mean that the gospel then is therefore milk. And something other than the gospel is the deeper food that Paul reserves for the mature. Now there is, a lot of people go with that view. I think there is a fatal flaw to that interpretation. And this is it. Paul has already admitted to us that he does have something for the mature does speak a wisdom for the mature. 1 Corinthians 2.6, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. But two weeks ago, we looked at what that wisdom was. It's not something beyond what he's already shared with the Corinthians. It's not something in addition to what he's already shared. It's not, Paul doesn't have the secret scroll that he pulls out, you know, he busts it out at leadership meetings. Like, hey guys, check out the secret wisdom. What Paul has consistently done has said that the hidden wisdom of God is Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 Greeks demand signs I'm sorry, Jews demand signs Greeks seek wisdom We preach Christ crucified. Verse 24 Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified 
is the power of God. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God, which means that the food that Paul provides for the mature is not something deeper than the gospel. The food for the mature is the gospel. Nowhere nowhere at all has Paul given any indication that the gospel is milk and that he's got some something better, some greater wisdom, some deeper insight that he's only say that he would he would only give it to them if they would just grow up a little bit. No, again and again, his whole point is I am preaching, I am proclaiming wisdom. You don't get it. That's the problem. You don't see it for what it is. Which means that when Paul says that he's not able to speak to them as spiritual people, I don't think it means he withheld wisdom from them didn't withhold something secret from them. So here's what we have to make sense of. On the one hand, Paul proclaims that the gospel to the Corinthians is considered milk rather than food. And on the other hand, Paul proclaims the gospel and it's considered wisdom for the mature. It's wisdom for the mature but it's milk for the Corinthians. How can it be that the gospel is merely milk, which is inferior to real food, and at the same time satisfying to those who are mature? And I think that the answer is that you will perceive the gospel to be either milk or food, depending on what's going on in your own heart. I don't think Paul is saying Um, I withheld some of my teaching. I think what he's saying is that your fleshly mentality made you unable to perceive my teaching for what it really is, which is real food for the mature. In other words, Paul isn't treating them as unspiritual with regards to the content of his teaching. He's not saying, I gave you baby food. Like, I only provide baby food for people like you. They perceive it to be milk. And his response is, I, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, Corinthians, which is what you're apparently calling the gospel, not with real food. Why? Because of the flesh. It would be food. I will not change your diet. This will be food to you if you will stop living according to the flesh. You'll see it for what it really is. So, the argument then goes, the flesh makes you blind. You could have the Holy Spirit, be enlightened, give in to the flesh, and start growing dim in your understanding again. And it happens over and over again. It's happened in my life. It's probably happened in your life. That's the first fruit of the, of the flesh that I want to um, just point out from this passage. The Corinthians are running everything through the grid of their fleshly lens. Or if I could mix metaphor, they're listening to everything through the, through the lens of their fleshly ears. It's distorting everything that they're hearing. And that's what's behind their rejection of this spokesman or that spokesman. There's rejection because of the flesh. It's what's behind the quarreling and the striving. It's the flesh. So as long as the self, the old me, the flesh is on the throne, when you come to God's word as people looking to feed on it and your desire is a fleshly desire, this is just not going to be very yummo to you. You're not going to like what the word of God has to say if you are coming to it with fleshly desire. It's going to seem unsubstantial. It's going to be unimpressive. It's just going to be like like milk. The second fruit of the flesh that I want to show is that the flesh will show its face. The flesh will show its face. Not only has it hindered the Corinthians' vision, but now it's manifesting itself in their lifestyle. Which we talked about this. That's just how the will works. You give your heart to fleshly desires, it will not be long before you start acting on those things because that's what the will does. It goes towards whatever it perceives to be the most desirable thing at any given point. So, 
verses 3 and verses 4 of our passage today. You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? They accept some, they reject others, it's quarreling, there's strife. And Paul supports his accusation by simply pointing to what is so obvious among them. Guys, you're fighting. That's how he supports, you're being fleshly. How do I know? Because you're fighting. It's just, it's showing his face. That's what the flesh always does. It wants to make a public appearance. Now, I, as I mentioned, I have, I've had a season like this. I, um, it's about 11 years ago, I just started just feeding unholy desires. You know, I just, I just was not guarding against cynicism. I wasn't guarding against uh, disrespect for authority, disrespect for church history. I, I, I just was, I just was growing angry and, and and fleshly desire, sexual desire, just not taking care of my heart or my mind. So, wasn't long. Before I dropped out of school, I started getting into relationships with people that didn't know the Lord. My mind was really loose. My lifestyle got really loose. My tongue got really loose. It just, I, just start, I just started looking like everybody else that doesn't know Jesus. It's a dangerous place to be. I had another friend who was going through the same thing at the same time. He's still going. It will show its face. You start looking just like someone who doesn't know Jesus. And you start going blind. There's a five or six month period where the only thing I could do was read the Psalms. Why? Because they were general enough, at least most of them, were general enough that I didn't have to come face to face with Explicit thoughts about Jesus. I just just give me something that just let let's just use as many generalities as possible. Got plugged into a really unhealthy church. Just kept every solid Bible believing, loving person who was like, "Hey man, uh, you need some help." Just keep it all at arm's length. And if that's where you're at, or if you're heading down that road, a gentle plea, just come back. Just, just come back. You, you do not want to go there. You, you're stuck. I, know, I, I mean, I know that there are questions. You know, when, when you go into a season like that, you've got these, these questions. They seem insurmountable. Some of them are going to be tough questions. Some of them only look tough from the perspective that you're in. As soon as you turn to Jesus, just humble your heart. The prideful heart is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But the humble heart turns to Jesus, and he can make that stuff. He can squash that stuff in a second. You can't see it from where you're at, but he can alleviate it. He can destroy it. You're stuck. And, it, and, and you just feel like, no, I got to get over this before I before I turn back, or I don't even know if I want. I know you feel stuck. I know you have questions, but I know you are not happy. That is not an enjoyable place to be. That's a depressing place to be. And I'm just I'm just pleading with you, come back, come back. Jesus will help you. I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. He can help you. Do not fear. You are stuck in fear. 
fear that he won't solve that problem. You've got some mental snag. Fear that you're going to get back into a bad relationship. Fear that he's not good to you. Do not fear. I will help you. He is good. Maybe you've read the Chronicles of Narnia. This uh, I love. This is my favorite line in all the Chronicles of Narnia that I've read so far. Uh, and they don't quite get it right in the movie. In the book, the Pevensies, Pevensies, they go to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house. They haven't met Aslan yet, and they start talking about Aslan. He's a king. And, oh, oh, I should very much like, Lucy says, I should very much like to meet a king. And at some point it comes out, he's a lion. And Lucy's like, whoa, he's a lion? Well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, child, haven't you been listening to anything Mrs. Beaver just told you? He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. Do not fear. It's not, it's not safe if what you want is painlessness. But he is good. Come back. Let's pray. I just want to thank you that you, you call sinners home. You call prodigals home. I believe there are probably prodigals in this room even this morning that you are calling home. And I just pray that you would overcome any hardness of heart, any doubts, any fears, any rebellion, any uh, excuses. Just bring them back, Lord. I pray that they would say no to the flesh and that they would just simply turn and say yes to Christ. I pray that they wouldn't feel like they have to get their life all fixed up so that they can say yes to Christ. I pray that right now that they would realize that you are extending the fatherly, shepherding arm of reconciliation that says, right now, I will receive you back. Come back. Serve your people, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, humble the heart so that there is no pushing away that, that, that your people this morning would not be pushing Christ away, keeping you at an arm's length. Right now, Holy Spirit, soften the heart. Give fresh sight of Jesus. Let the, the, the nails in his hands, the, the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his side be a reminder that right now, all that sin, all that rebelling, this last two months, this last two weeks, this last six months, these last few years, it's all washed away. Perhaps there are some even in this room this morning, Lord Jesus, that have never come for the first time. Please, Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that the gospel is beautiful to them, even right now. Be with your people. Call your prodigals home. Have your glory, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name.